You are listening to Insights, produced by the University of New South Wales Law Society, a podcast dedicated to bring you an insight into law school, the legal profession, and legal issues. The production team would also like to show our respects and acknowledge the Bedigal people, who are the traditional custodians of the land, of elders past and present on which this podcast is made. Today we're very privileged to be speaking with former Justice of the High Court of Australia, Michael Kirby, who has had an illustrious career which includes serving as a President of the New South Wales Court of Appeal and a Judge in the Federal Court of Australia and a Commissioner for the UN Commission of Inquiry into Human Rights Abuses in North Korea. He is also a Distinguished Professorial Fellow at the UNSW Faculty of Law and Justice. Thank you Mr Kirby for taking the time to speak with us today. So uh, Mr Kirby, we might like to start off by asking a couple of questions about you. So most of our listeners will know you from the time that you were spent in the High Court, but I've seen that you're still an incredibly busy person, as has Sanjay, knowing you quite well, uh, including attending overseas conferences, being an arbitrator, and being involved in initiatives to support law students. What do you do to unwind amongst all of this organised chaos? And are there any particular hobbies that you enjoy? Now, there's not too much chaos. There's, it's actually a very structured life. I'm afraid I'm a very A-type personality and that is just something I was probably by the time I started law school. What do I do? Well, I do love music. I have a very nice man whose whole life was devoted. He's just retired being an HIV doctor. He had a really hard life and he sends me virtually every day uh, something um, on YouTube usually which is the music of J.S. Bach. Now Bach is somehow hardwired to our brains and it is just astonishing that that man was able to create so much beautiful music and so um, I used to unwind to Gustav Mahler but my partner Johan objected to Mahler. He thought he was very long-winded and that that was encouraging me to be long-winded and that Bach is compressed brilliance and that's what I'm aiming to be before the end. Um, So changing tack into your time as a student studying law, um, was there anything that inspired you to study it? Um, Did you have any life experiences that led led you to that pathway? no life experience. My mother's family were very educated people from Northern Ireland uh, and um, my great-grandfather was a fellow of the Royal Society of Ireland um, but his area was archaeology um, and um, my mother's great-aunts were painters and botanists So that was unusual in the 19th century to have given such encouragement to women. Uh, My father's side were very um, well-read and many women, very feisty women. I was always surrounded by a lot of very clever and feisty women. Don't ever let it be said that people turn gay because they've, they've not got male images around them because Uh, I had plenty of male images and very strong women and um, uh, but no lawyers 
Sir Richard Kirby, who was a famous Australian judge when I was young, he was the president of the Arbitration Commission, to which I was ultimately appointed, used to say that he didn't mind being called my his uh, son, but he objected to being called Grandpa. Uh, but he was a uh, he was a very good lawyer, and uh, but he was no relation. So, um, but when I was about eight, at the North Strathfield Public School, uh, departmental officials came in dressed in dust jackets, and they said, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And all the boys wrote out train driver or other things, and I said, "I want to be a judge or a bishop." And so I was very determined to get into fancy dress. And that was at a very early age, at the age of um, fourth class. So uh, it was planted in my mind, probably because I was not so good at mathematics and I was good at speaking and history and English and, you know, the usual things, suspects. Um, speaking of history, is there a particular historical figure that you find particularly um, inspirational or any particular historical moment or story that really um, you know, captures your curiosity? Well, um, I, I, I just loved history. In fact, factually, I think I sh- should have been a historian, not a lawyer, but uh, uh, I came top of the state in New South Wales in the Leaving Certificate, as it was then, in history. And I still love history, and and I think it's shameful that legal history has been dropped from the um, programs of most law schools in Australia, uh, because you can't really understand the law, especially the common law tradition, unless you understand where it all came from. But as to historical uh, personages, personages um, when I was at school. Uh, at, at high school, at Fort Street High School, we were regularly told about Dr. Evatt. H.V. Evatt was a Justice of the High Court of Australia from 1930 to 1940, and then he became the uh, Federal Minister for External Affairs. He became the President of the United Nations, and he sent me and all the other school children of Australia at the time a copy of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, he, he fought the communism legislation in the High Court and in the referendum. So he was my type of guy. He, he ultimately ended up being a little bit um, um, paranoid, uh, maybe with reason. But, uh, and uh, the research shows that he was a supporter of white Australia, uh, which I certainly am not. So he was a, a man of his time, but in his time he was an internationalist and that had a big impact on me and it still has. Well, I must say, given your interest in history, I think a lot of us law students would agree that you have certainly shaped a lot of the more recent legal history. So while you may not have been a profession, a professional historian by trade, I think you've certainly left your mark. And Yes, but I, I learned one thing in the High Court of Australia. The first week I arrived there, Michael McHugh said to me 
there's only one thing you really got to learn about this place, Michael. I said, oh, what is that, Michael? What is that? And he said, four. You've got to know that you've got to be one of four because unless you're one of four, you really don't matter. Uh, the four are the four justices who subscribe to a principle of law that becomes the ruling principle of the case of the High Court. And unfortunately, in part because of my uh, different attitude to many things, especially the role of international law and human rights law, uh, I was often not a member of the four, and that limits the impact of my decisions from a point of view of precedential binding value. But I couldn't do anything about that because I certainly wasn't going to tailor my opinions to say something I didn't believe. And so that was just my dharma at that time in the High Court and my life. That is where my life led me. But I was true to my beliefs as I think all the other justices were. And it's just that my beliefs then were out of vogue. I've got to hope for uh, a future in which uh, some of the ideas that I expounded will become more popular and ultimately join of the four, another four, later. I mean, that is really interesting because um, ultimately um, we've seen time and again the composition of the high courts often made up of people who went to the top um, high schools in the in the country, went to the top law schools, including the the Sydney Law School. Um, what was it that made that made your reasoning so different to everyone else's? Um, is it, for example, because of the fact that um, you had a different sexuality? Did that lead to a more sort of um, human rights oriented approach towards some of the most complex um, problems that came before the court? Well, that's an interesting question, and I don't think I've ever been asked that, certainly not uh, by students. <coughs> uh, and uh, James Spiegelman, who later became the Chief Justice of New South Wales, said, commenting rather disparagingly on uh, biographies that had been written, what we're waiting for is the psychobiography. <coughs> because most lawyers are so polite that they wouldn't dream of asking such a question or dream of going into such issues. Uh, and I wouldn't say that my sexual orientation uh, directly affected um, the decisions because at least in some cases where the issue was raised, I recused myself at a, at a certain stage, not later. But um, it, it necessarily um, it made me questioning of discrimination generally, because I think it's it's a real mistake of women to be only interested in women's rights, or Aboriginals to be only interested in Aboriginal rights, or uh, people of different ethnicity to be only interested in race. Um, what you've got to do is learn from the um, discrimination that particular groups suffer the general lesson about discrimination in the law. And I think I did learn that. If, if a, a gay person who suffered the levels of discrimination 
that I did in my life didn't learn that, well, they were just blind to what was going on around them. So I do think it made me critical and not necessarily willing to accept a lot of the propaganda that everything in the garden was beautiful because everything in the garden wasn't beautiful. And at least for women, uh, for Aboriginals, for uh, people of different non-Caucasian race, uh, and for LGBTIQ people, there was discrimination and it lasted a very long time and I don't think it's all disappeared. I think it's still there and we've got to be very alert to it, all forms of it. Yeah. And that's that's really important. Um, I see with a lot of students who do join the UNSW Law Society, they come seeking us out for opportunities to get involved with trying to fight discrimination. There are still many students that I come across at uni who have been kicked out because of sexuality, but are very willing to work on, for example, refugee cases because they understand what it's like to be different. Um, but changing tactics... Well, that's a good thing. I mean, I think sometimes you, you, you can't expect people to jump... Uh, generations and out of social constructs that they've been brought up on but they'll find another way to, to deal with the issue. It was the same in the early days of HIV. The question became how could somebody who was a member of a football club make a blood donation and the solution to that was they designed a form that allowed somebody to tick uh, use my blood for research purposes and that was became a sort of code so that the person didn't have to own up or they didn't have to interrogate them as to their sexual orientation. There are different ways people can express uh, and I hope everybody in the future will be more bold and more honest about issues of sexual orientation because it's just a small variation in nature and it's not all that significant. But going back to the topic of students being very involved in civil rights movements and in terms of discrimination, I mean, you had a very active, um, you know, time when you were at uh, Sydney University. Um, as Why a are you smiling, Sandy? <laughs> Just because I had the most active. I, I was the president of everything. I became the president of the Law Society, the president of the SRC twice the president of the union, of the fellow of the senate representing undergraduates. Uh, my career was just plain glorious. Uh, so I did everything and fundamentally that was a way of suppressing my sexuality. I, I didn't have any sexual life and my life was just taken up chairing student meetings. Uh, and. I became a very good chair. I'm still a good chair, but I thank all those poor unfortunate student politicians who had to put up with me because I learned how to chair a meeting, to, to be respectful to others, to get what they're trying to say, to encapsulate it, to sum it up, and to push the meeting forward, preferably in a direction I wanted. And uh, that was something I really learned in student politics and student life it was a very, very, it, it was a sad time as I look back on it. Um, not having a sexual life in your 20s is a pretty sad thing, but it was a, it was a good time for me to learn how to 
handle interpersonal relations. Sadly, I didn't have so much success on the High Court of Australia, but that was because of quite deep philosophical differences that emerged. I have to ask, because um, we're all quite involved in the university societies, what was the highlight of your extracurricular um, involvement at uni? Was there a particular role or society that you most enjoyed volunteering in? Uh, <clears throat> well, I liked it all. Boringly enough, I, I, I loved it whilst others were out <clears throat> at uh, student gigs and uh, dance parties and so on. Uh, I was just chairing all these meetings. But it was an interesting time because this was the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, it was the time uh, of APSCOL, which were the first scholarships for Aboriginal students. The weird thing was that the British had done more for um, African students than we Australians had done for our own Aboriginal students. And so we had demonstrations and uh, I worked with uh, Charles Perkins. We went up to Moree and to uh, Walgett uh, to liberate the cinema there, which wouldn't let Aboriginals go upstairs. So uh, there, were, there were the issues of race and there were the issues of gender and there were the issues of war and peace. Uh, the issue of LGBT was not on the agenda. No one talked about it in those days. This was the unmentionable, um, unnatural offences. And I, I am a relic of the last generation of Australian lawyers who was taught unnatural offences. They were in the Crimes Act of New South Wales until 1984 and uh, Mr Vernon Triot, in my first year in law school, taught us criminal law and uh, he came to that point of the Crimes Act where he had to teach us unnatural offences and I remember blushing at the time and wondering, does anybody here know that this is something that affects me? But uh, hopefully I was good enough actor. Um, but it is really incredible to hear, you know, all of these um, civil rights movements that you got to, got to see um, when, when you were studying at university. It seems that we don't necessarily see it to the same extent, and I'm not sure if it's because of the fact that a lot of it has shifted to social media. But on that topic, you have commented that students these days should be troublemakers and push for change. Um, is there, you know, something that you think has sort of held back students that wasn't necessarily something that was uh, that was present in any reticence in students when you were studying? Well, I think uh, nowadays, as you have said, there is a lot of digital intercommunication. I often think that it's rather impersonal in comparison to the personal interaction that we have to have in my time. Um, but I was always, I became a joiner, and I was always a joiner. And when I was at the university, uh, I, I was chairing all these student uh, committees, but I then became the honorary solicitor. And the honorary solicitor for the students was helping students in, in cases where they were likely to be sent out of the university for minor infractions. 
um, or uh, were arrested for not paying their fare on the bus. Uh, some of the finest judges I've known were my clients in those days. Uh, but um, And then when I uh, left the university, I continued this through the Council for Civil Liberties. Now, I, I don't know, nowadays, I don't think people are quite so willing to join civil society organisations, but it's civil society organisations overseas and in Australia that often lead, uh, especially university students, uh, the community, because these are people who are willing to ask about uh, uh, the injustices. This is the question. If Dr. Evatt, one of the greatest humanitarians Australia has ever produced, President of the General Assembly, one of the authors of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, felt he could defend white Australia in the political realities of Australia after the Second World War, it's a bit like defending coal mining in today's Australia. And you've just got to have people who question and people who challenge and university students are people with extra knowledge they will they've got and therefore extra obligations to bring that knowledge uh, and to expand the issues of human rights and to ask what are the things we don't see today that are equivalent to Dr Evert's blindness on issues of race uh, and and the blindness of so many, Mr Triot included, teach me criminal law on issues of sexuality. Uh, what are the things we are not seeing in today's generation? And that's the challenge for young students today. Speaking of those issues that we're not seeing, I mean, we've uh, we previously spoken about your support for animal rights and your involvement in that space um, and the fact that you're a patron at Voiceless. Would you like to tell us a bit more about what drew you to this cause and a bit more about what your role involves? Well, I was at the end of my tether because I had just finished my time on the High Court of Australia. Uh, I was asked to launch a book on animal welfare law in Australia and New Zealand. The book uh, was published by Queensland University of Technology, I think, and um, I had vague ideas about animal welfare, but I'd never really sat down and sort of read it through. And because, unlike Mr Whitlam, who was the great book launcher, he never, never read books that he'd launched, um, he only somehow turned them into a story about his own glorious career. I did read these books and I read this book on animal welfare and it taught me how cruel it is of human beings to <coughs> um, put animals in desperate situations uh, where they know what is happening to them and, and, and to their their family have animals and um, and then chop them up and eat their body parts it's it's uh, so I I came to the conclusion there and then that I would not eat meat anymore and it's actually the week I finished in the High Court that I launched this book and from that night I have not eaten any meat and 
I've sent to, sometimes to my nephews and nieces and they say, oh, yes, we know you're right about this, we know you're right, but I just love the taste of it. <laughs> and I can't really boast because up to the age of 70, I had been a carnivore, but um, uh, even my partner, Johan, who's very sceptical about most of my activities, um, he's not eating so much meat now. If one person in the kitchen is 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 a vegetarian, a vegan, or a non-meat eater, then uh, it becomes harder to have a kitchen that has meat in it because the smell of it and the look of it and the taste of it. Mm. Uh, I've even got mental hesitations about eating um, vegetarian bacon because you then really actually eating something which tastes remarkably like bacon. But for any any students out there who want to be eating less meat, uh, and that's good for your health, uh, then you should um, try the vegetarian options nowadays because it's just astonishing what what you can eat that is like meat if that's what you want to do. I'm not a strict vegetarian and I still eat some fish uh, so I'm sort of like a, a South uh, South Indian. Uh, uh, I'm eating uh, some fish but I've, I don't eat any meat, no meat, no chicken uh, and that's a big difference from most Australians though I find many university students are actually quite interested in this, especially young women are quite interested in, they might maybe have thought about the horror story of chopping up sentient creatures. It's, you wouldn't do it to your dog or your cat, but yet we do it to other creatures and we've got to cut down on meat. It is funny that you that you said that you eat like a South Indian because I actually happen to come from the south of India and that is very true. It is interesting how people from different parts of the world um, would find it astonishing that meat has become such a cent central part of, Austra of the Australian diet, whereas that's not how it is for me. It was always something that was a little bit on the side, but the main hero was rice and some lentils or something else. Yeah, well, you can... You can find solutions if you want to try to cut down. <clears throat> I think it, it's better to just stop eating it um, and you feel better about it. I thought I would get slim and trim, uh, but unfortunately I haven't become slim and trim. I feel that's very unfair of nature not to <laughs> help me along that path, but um, uh, it's, it's easy once you've given it up to find other nice things to eat. Mm. Well, I was going to say, a lot of the cafes and restaurants that you go to, and even those on campus, they very well cater now to the vegetarian lifestyle, if not the vegan lifestyle. So I think we have come a fair way, but there is obviously a lot of work still to be done. Yes. I, I think I think it has definitely improved. And even I, in the, in the magnificent restaurants that I go to, um, there's always a vegetarian option. I mean, there must be enough vegetarian and non-meat-eating Australians uh, who, and where they don't, I always make a fuss and say, don't you know that there are people who don't eat 
and you should have something for, for such people. Well, it's like gluten-free. Menus that don't cater for gluten-free are quite outdated um, and need, I don't think there are a lot of places that don't cater for that. I think similarly vegetarianism and veganism now is something that is so highly regarded that it would be quite shocking. And if it goes back didn't. to um, pushing the boundaries. So the more yeah. more people who actually ask these questions of people who are working in the restaurants and the more aware they are of this it's demand. It's not crazy or weird to ask questions about uh, inflicting fear and pain on sentient creatures. Um, that That is something... Actually, you know, it's strange when I think of my upbringing as a Christian that there was so much talk about what people did in the bedroom uh, and not really. There's very little in, in Christian or, or Judaic uh, religious instruction about uh, vegetarianism or cutting down on meat. And it's strange, really, that, that there's... Why don't they send, spend a bit more of their time on, on issues like this, which are definite moral issues, um, instead of harassing and hounding people, because we haven't solved all the issues of LGBT people in Australia, but in other countries overseas, it's, it's really a shocking situation, and many of them, uh, the, the oppression is still uh, as great as it was in in Australia when I was young. And disturbingly, some of them are going backwards as well. Um, so, yeah, it is a bit bleak in terms of LGBT rights elsewhere in the world. Yes, well, it's the duty of, of young lawyers to be interested in and engaged with injustices in the world. And unfortunately, uh, in the time of COVID, a lot of uh, governments that are by nature oppressive have um, really used the opportunity to introduce um, new laws and regulations which are uh, adding to the oppression. And uh, I did a webinar yesterday uh, to El Salvador in Central America and um, <clears throat> they uh, used to be a fairly relaxed country but they've now got a leader um, who is really very oppressive and including oppressive to LGBT people. It tends to come as a package. Same in Belarus, same in the Russian Federation. Countries that are oppressive always pick out LGBT people as targets. And uh, there's a big exhibition coming up in the Victorian uh, gallery, the National Gallery of Victoria, um, and I wrote uh, the, a foreword to the brochure on, on it and it's really amazing looking back at the history of the oppression of, of uh, queer people, uh, how it uh, has often been used uh, as uh, an explanation for earthquakes uh, and uh, uh, other horrible things that happen in society. Uh, why did this happen? Blame the queers. And this is something that history reveals. If you go through the history of uh, sexual minorities, they are often oppressed and killed uh, because they are blamed for anything happening in society that uh, 
that uh, is unwanted. And, and speaking of oppression across the world, it is very easy as students now to feel feel very bleak about, about what's going on. Because on, on the one hand, we are bombarded with news about what's happening in all corners of the world. But on the other hand, we feel almost helpless in terms of how we could you know, really make any positive change in these people's lives. Is there sort of any lessons that you can draw upon, whether you know, from your involvement in the UN or elsewhere, that you can provide students in terms of those who, who want to make this sort of tangible difference? I think uh, the, the very existence of the United Nations, don't forget I'm a child of the United Nations. I, I was growing into consciousness at the end of the Second World War and getting from our teachers the gift from Dr. Evert of the Universal Declaration uh, and being taught about what it contained and the interrelationship of uh, peace and security uh, after the atomic bomb uh, detonations in Japan uh, and how interrelated all this was with universal human rights. So if you know my history and my life, uh, it's really not surprising that I have been very committed to these things. But um, uh, there are many, many real issues that students, especially law students, should be addressing. Um, for example, the issue of nuclear weapons. Uh, it's just too complicated and too frightening and therefore nobody wants to talk about it, nobody wants to think about it. Even uh, an international civil society organisation that I'm a member of, when I raised the issue, I was told, look, we don't have the resources, we don't have the, there's not much interest in our members, uh, this is not something that we can really talk about, but uh, my work on North Korea taught me how seriously dangerous it is to have an extremely oppressive state that commits crimes against humanity regularly against its own people in charge of 30 nuclear warheads. I mean, that is a really serious situation. And unless we can resolve it, then we needn't worry too much about all the other little problems we've got in our world because uh, we've got the, the uh, huge 30,000 nuclear weapons at least uh, and uh, the uh, non-proliferation uh, is breaking down under the demands of really horrible oppressive countries. So this is so awful uh, that it is difficult to get people to face up to it. But um, we've got to get back to thinking about and addressing this. Uh, a special uh, step was taken in January of 2021 which was the uh, ratification of 50 states of the nuclear ban treaty. This is the treaty that uh, uh, commits countries that ratify it uh, to, uh, uh, to resist having anything to do with nuclear weapons and encourages the, uh, the uh, destruction and uh, demobilization of all of those weapons. Now, little New Zealand has ratified, and they're a, 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 a treaty uh, partner with the United States of America, 
so has um, uh, Ireland and uh, Austria, uh, Thailand uh, and other states, serious countries have ratified uh, and in fact that treaty grew out of an initiative of Australian citizens. It was ICANN, the International Committee Against Nuclear Weapons, founded in Melbourne. Melbourne's a very serious place, unlike Sydney, which is sybaritic and just doesn't want to talk about such things. But this group in Melbourne founded ICANN, which started lobbying for and drafting the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, they got the Nobel Prize for Peace in 2017. How many other Australians have won the Nobel Prize for Peace? It's never happened before, but most Australians have got no idea that this group in Melbourne established the steps that led to the, uh, the treaty. We haven't ratified, um, and, uh, and there's not much talk about it in Australia. It's just too difficult. There, there are problems, coal mining, uh, nuclear weapons, just too difficult. We, we don't want to talk about those things. Well, I'm saying we have to talk about it. And they have a legal content, as the nuclear ban treaty demonstrates. It's a legal document, and it's part of international law. It has come into effect January 2021. And I'll bet not many of the law students at UNSW even have even heard about it. And, and that's something that relates to our survival as a species. It's really important. On that note then, might I ask, what would your advice be to students who are interested in finding out more about these important issues, but perhaps don't know where to even start, noting that it may not be discussed in great depth in Australia? Well, it would be good if student politics could have uh, fora, could have talks uh, and invite people. Uh, Professor Tillman Ruff, who is at the University of Melbourne and Monash, has a chair there. He got the Nobel Prize. He actually went and the King of, uh, of Norway presented the Nobel Prize for Peace to him. And I went to a, a function and he handed around his Nobel Prize for Peace, this beautiful medallion. Um, and uh, I'm sure he would come up and talk. I mean, you've got to take initiatives and you've got to... Uh, this, was, this is what we did in my time on much more manageable issues. But they were big enough. Uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the compulsory military service for the Vietnam War, uh, the objection to what was happening there, uh, the ballot, the, um, the the marbles that were taken out with a birth date, uh, to uh, decide that you should you should go into national service and go to serve in Vietnam, uh, the issue of our Aboriginals. Well, have we solved that in Australia? No, we haven't, and we've got to get why it is so difficult for Australia to allow a voice into our federal parliament. I don't know. I'd, uh, it's, it's true that it's a little vague, but the Aboriginals are speaking to us in poetry. They're speaking in their languages and their culture uh, in a poetic way, a voice they want. And it's not an unreasonable request, it's not a particularly big request. 
but this is something we have to address. So there's a lot on the agenda, nuclear weapons, climate change, of race and indigenous status, uh, and LGBT issues, women's rights uh, and uh, racial um, minorities, um, the, the remnants of white Australia, which we can see in the treatment of refugees. Um, there's plenty on the agenda that can be taken up. Yeah, and it is remarkable, just circling back to the point about about ICANN, for example. I actually had the pleasure of meeting them at a Model United Nations um, conference, but yeah, I had not heard anything about them, and I can't really speak with any, any meaningful sort of authority about what their work until perhaps the way you put, where you put it, the, the sort of consequential work that they've done. Um, which is a shame, given, given that that is a huge Australian um, achievement. Um, it is a great yeah. achievement, a great achievement. They haven't even got a tiny cocktail party from the federal government. I, you know, I could write, I could sit down in the corner here and write, uh, we don't really agree with this strategy. We think it's important to have Pine Gap and other resources for the United States and Australia. We think this is the best protection for Australia's uh, security. And you can make a case and have a discussion, but nothing. It's, it's simply not been mentioned. And even when I try to get my colleagues in international civil society, they say, oh, this is, this is just too complicated and we, we, we can't think about it. Well, we've got to start thinking about it. And hopefully um, societies like, for example, UNICEF Law Society can, can get the conversation rolling at least at a student level a bit well, more. Well, they are going to be the, the leaders of the future. Uh, in fact, the first founder of the uh, University of New South Wales, uh, Sir Philip Baxter, uh, was uh, a participant in the Manhattan Project. Uh, his, and and uh, Sir Ernest Titterton, uh, uh, also the Manhattan Project. I mean. Australia and Sir Marcus Oliphant, Manhattan Project. We, we had a lot of roles in the development of the nuclear weapons and now we've got this legacy of, of nuclear weapons um, and we set up the Canberra Commission to explore ways uh, of um, stopping uh, the expansion of nuclear um, weapon possession uh, but uh, that really has faded away and Australia is not a leader in these issues as it should be in my opinion. If little New Zealand can do these things, I mean there's something really beautiful about New Zealand. It's a lovely country uh, and they're much more themselves. They, they, they stand up for what they believe in and they're much better on race and they had a treaty and we never had the treaty and um, uh, that's why the Aboriginal people in the voice uh, from the heart uh, in, at Uluru uh, two years back have said they want a voice into federal parliament and they want a treaty, a makarata. And it's going to fall to your generation to um, deliver this. And don't let anybody ever tell you that Parliament will always fix up all our problems. Parliament doesn't. Parliament did not fix up uh, Aboriginal land rights. That was 
dealt with by the High Court of Australia, unelected judges, in 1992 in the Marvo case. That was before I was on the court. I can't take credit, I can't take blame. But I could write here and now the reasons why not to reach the decision that was reached in Marvo. Land law, investments, complicated, confirmed by earlier decisions in colonial courts, confirmed by the Privy Council, confirmed by the High Court, uh, why would you interfere? It should be left to Parliament. It needs uh, complex economic reasons and the Royal Commission report. But the High Court justices said enough is enough, and we do not. The Common Law does not uh, embrace issues of racial discrimination, and that was Marbo. It was a wonderful decision. I remember in my chambers as President of the Court of Appeal at the time, I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's a big decision. And it was a big decision. And um, I, I honour uh, Justice uh, Mason and Justice Brennan and the uh, Justices, Justice Dean, Justice Gordon, you know, that, they, that was a really great decision of the High Court of Australia. Um, given that we are running out of time, there is one last question that we did want to ask you, and this does pertain to the bench. Um, so over the last few years, there have been reports from several media outlets about um, how the Supreme Court and the High Court, Supreme Court being the New South Wales Supreme Court, um, have a large concentration of people from elite schools and affluent background with little, if any, cultural diversity. Do you see things changing anytime soon? And do you think that there's anything that universities and law schools and student law societies can do in order to ensure that our judiciary reflects our community a bit more? Uh, well, um, I, I, I must admit that during most of my time serving on the High Court of Australia, I was the only justice whose entire education had been in public schools. Um, and that itself is a peculiar thing because 67% um, of Australians have all their education in public schools. And I'm a great supporter of public schools because of the fact that you go to a public school in Australia today and it is usually a microcosm of Australia as it is. I go to some uh, private and religious schools, and they're fine schools, um, dedicated teachers, but it's much more like a reflection of Australia when I was at school, um, much paler and um, more patriarchal. So um, I think it would be a good thing if uh, law schools, I know at UNSW, Dean Dixon made efforts to promote knowledge in public schools in the um, area that UNSW serves that they could get into a law school because many of them don't necessarily imagine it and uh, I, I think you should be doing what you can to um, ensure that the next generations include a more diverse range of people. You ask law schools nowadays in Australia where they went to school, public or private, and I sometimes have done that, and it's still, even today, it's reflecting 
a sort of um, uh, a wealth uh, criterion and I, I don't know that that's a, a good way to go because law is power law is power the judiciary is power and the power is the expression of the law the interpretation of the constitution the interpretation of the statutes all of this is power and it's therefore in the interests of a country that uh, declares its democracy to make sure that it reflects the whole range of the population of the country. Well, look, thank you so much, Mr Kirby. Um, we hate to cut it short, but as Sanjay did say, unfortunately time has run out. But we really do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today um, and to just be so candid and open with your view. It, it is very much appreciated. Uh, Sanjay and I would also like to thank the team, um, although out of sight um, and not within speaking range, we do appreciate everything that went into making this podcast happen. Um, so thanks again and thank you for being a part of our Insights podcast. Um, we're sure a lot of students will really appreciate hearing from you, so thank you. Thank you. I'll be back. You better be. <laughs>